We've been in a series called Address the Mess, and a big piece of this series has just been recognizing that we all have experienced a mess. And because we've all experienced a mess, are in a mess, have one uh, decision away from a mess, we have perspective when we walk and interact with others that are in a mess, and uh, we can have a little bit better picture of what that looks like. So we know a mess when we see a mess because we are or we have been in a mess. It's kind of where we launched off on the series. And then we talked a little bit about how Jesus has an answer for messy people. And his answer for messy people is always come follow me. It's never you have to have everything together first. Clean up your mess. It's always come and follow me. And that invitation to follow him is authentic and it's right where you're at. And then last week we talked about how Jesus loves the little messes, all the messes of the world, right? But he loves us too much to leave us in our mess. He loves us too much to leave us in our mess. And so we've been walking through this idea of of everyone experiencing a mess. We don't want to be a person who judges everyone else's mess, but we still want to speak the truth in love. And then today, we're going to talk about what does it take to move towards the mess? What does it take to have perspective when somebody's in a mess What is your reaction? And I love that it's Mother's Day today because moms have a very specific reaction when someone's in a mess that they love. They come to their defense. I grew up with a Puerto Rican mom and there is something, she was sweet, she's as kind as can be, but if somebody's in trouble, she's a person you wanna call because the fire comes out. What did you say about my kid? What did you think he did? What's going on? Like that, that fire comes out in that moment. And I love that. I love that uh, inside of mom and also the compassion to come to the rescue. And so we're, uh, we're talking a little bit about that. And I was thinking about how often uh, we're going to get uh, to what Luke chapter 10 here in just a moment, if you, if you want to jump ahead. But I was thinking about how do people see Christians when they're in a mess? And what do people see when they see people who go to church when they're in a mess? What's their perspective of us? And oftentimes I think what happens is that we have people who can know the name of Jesus, but not have experienced the love of Jesus. You can know the name of Jesus. You can hear about it. You can hear stories, but you've never experienced the love of Jesus. And one of the problems that we face when we're in a mess, when we're in a mess, is people attempt to tell us the truth of Jesus without ever demonstrating the love of Jesus. And one of the dilemmas that we have oftentimes just in a global perspective of people who follow Jesus is we're good at telling people about Jesus, but we're not always good at demonstrating the love of Jesus. And we're going to explore that a little bit because the other problem we run into is we want to hear about the love of Jesus, but what about the love of Jesus's people? What about the love that's supposed to come through us and be demonstrated in us? If I keep hearing that Jesus is loving and you keep telling me that Christians are loving and then I meet Christians and they're not loving, how am I supposed to reconcile that tension? How am I supposed to process that tension? And we see people, we interact with people who have a very difficult time processing that. They have a term for people who love Jesus, yet don't love them. Hypocrite. They say that's inconsistent. And so we have to walk into this tension about how do we do it? Because here's the problem. People are messy. And I got my own messes. 
And usually when I see a mess ahead of me, my standard move is to get out of the way so it doesn't splash on me because I already have enough mess that I'm dealing with. Come on, am I the only one in the room that's honest? So how do we process walking through this life, loving like Jesus, following Jesus, yet interacting with messes and people who are in tough spots and figuring out what in the world is expected of us? So if you got your Bibles, we're going to go to Luke chapter 10, and we're going to be in a story that's really familiar, but I hope it jumps out at you in a way that maybe it's never jumped out at you before. Because Jesus interacts with somebody who has an incredible religious background, who can quote to you more about what it means scripturally to follow God, at least in the Old Testament, than any of us can. He is studied and astute, He understands what is expected based on the law of God. And he interacts with Jesus, attempting ultimately to kind of trap Jesus. And the way Jesus peels this apart is amazing. I want it to jump off the page to us today. I'm in Luke chapter 10, verse 25. And it says, on one occasion, an expert in the law, some versions will just say lawyer. I'm glad it says expert in the law because when I hear lawyer, I think of something different. Right? I think of someone who has an angle, an edge, who's advocating for a case, who has to take a specific side and try to win that side. Not all lawyers are bad. Right? There's a stigma out there. Some lawyers are great. But their goal is to win based on a specific side. But this man is, is, is a lawyer, but his expertise is in the law of God. He's not civil cases. He's not dealing with those kinds of things. He is someone who they bring to the table to say, tell us how you read this and give us the authentic answer of what the law of God requires. You're the expert. An expert of the law stood up to test Jesus. That's a pretty funny expression for us to hear, right? It's funny for us to think about someone testing Jesus because we have a picture of who Jesus is. But that's not the picture this man had. This man had a picture that Jesus was leading a small rabble of believers that are kind of radicalized. This man would have thought, compared to me, Jesus is relatively uneducated. He hasn't studied in the temple the way I have. I got my master's, my doctorate in Bible and theology. I don't know, something, some equivalent of that. And here's Jesus who's just walking around talking about God. Let me put this guy in his place. Now think about this. How often do we come to Jesus and we think we're already experts in what he should expect from us? We start from that position of, all right, God, I know this is what you're gonna want, but, and we try to lawyer Jesus. Never works out. It never works out. He's also not a genuine seeker. It's clear that he stands up to test Jesus He's not trying to have a heart change. He's actually trying to bring Jesus over to his side or to correct him. It says he stood up to test Jesus. And he says, teacher. Now I can only imagine for his perspective to call Jesus teacher, there's gotta be a little bit of an undertow to that. I'm the guy who studied. I put my time in, but I get it. People are following you and calling you a rabbi. So teacher, And then he asked an amazing question. He says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, this is fascinating because as a lawyer, as an Old Testament scholar, this language doesn't exist in the Old Testament. 
That's not a principle. Inheriting eternal life is not the kind of language that they use in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, it's do this and you will live, right? That's the language. This inherit eternal life, he's playing on Jesus's words. And so you can see the, the cleverness of his lawyering, right? He's saying, you're talking about some different principle because you're not as educated as I am. You're framing it wrong, but I'm gonna walk into how you framed it, Jesus, and you tell me what must I do to inherit this eternal life you speak of. Now, he's thinking, I have a laundry list of things that we do. There's 10 commandments, but there are hundreds of other laws, and there's all of the policies that we've put in place to make sure no one breaks any of these laws, and I am an expert on all of them. So you tell me, Mr. In in inherit Eternal Life guy, and your followers, what of these things that I'm a master of are the things that you are saying. Now his goal is to get him to say anything, that way he can take that and say, well, see, here's what you're missing, and eventually correct Jesus. Again, if you ever come to the table thinking, God, I think I need to correct Jesus on this one, it's probably not gonna go well for you. <laughs> so he's trying to lawyer Jesus. Now here's one thing I do want you to catch. Even though his intentions aren't great, this is an awesome question. If you ever had a face-to-face -face with Jesus and he said, you got one question, one question you can ask me, period. You can't go wrong with this question. This is a great one question. If you got a one-off and there's Jesus. Now, you may have a personal agenda thing. You could say, God, why didn't you talk more about whatever thing that you're personally concerned about? And that might be good and relevant to your world and where you're at. But if you want a, in all of history, the story of mankind, the story of life and God's interaction with humans, and you want one big question to be the question, this is a great question. What do you expect of me? That's a phenomenal question. So he nails it with this. In a minute, he's gonna ask a horrible question, but I wanna give him some credit here. He says, what do you want from me? We should all ask this question. We should all be processing this question. Today, in some regards, I'm asking this question as I talk about walking towards the mess as I talk about how do we interact with people who are broken that Jesus loves when we only have so many Lego pegs and we only have so much resource, as I, as I ask that tension. In some regards, I'm still asking this question today. And I hope you're asking this question. So Jesus, being Jesus, takes the lawyer and instead of answering him, answers him with a question. What do you think, <laughs> right? And he answers him, he goes, okay, verse 26. He says, what is written in the law? You're an expert of the law. How do you read it? You can imagine this guy's thinking, here's my opportunity. I can show how smart I am. I can show how well I've studied. I can show my handle of the Old Testament scriptures. I can demonstrate to this crowd that's following Jesus. This is what it looks like when someone knows their stuff and isn't just off the cuffing it the way this rabbi you're following seems to be doing. And so he says, verse 27, he answered, and you know this passage, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Now, this is a beautiful passage of scripture. We quote it all the time. We recognize that, that this is, uh, in another place, Jesus says, all of the commandments hang on these. 
These are like the pegs. These are the studs that hold the wall together. This is the anchor bolts of our faith and how we follow Jesus. We understand that. What's brilliant is this guy's sharp. He's pulled this from two different passages. This isn't just somewhere in the Old Testament. He's demonstrated his articulate nature. He's demonstrated that he studied. It's from Deuteronomy chapter six, uh, verse five, uh, where Moses says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, right? He's quoting Deuteronomy. He's like, that's really important. And he goes, and I would pair it with Leviticus 19, 18. And that's where it says, don't seek revenge or bear a grudge against one of your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So he's taking two principles from the Old Testament, from different books, and saying, this, if, if you ask me, and all of my study of all of the law, of everything that God's given to us, what I read as the most important piece, and he nails it. Love God with your heart, soul, mind, strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. And he puts these two things together. He doesn't get enough credit for that. That's a brilliant lawyering. That's good lawyering. He's not some knucklehead. He is educated. He does know his stuff. And I love this because his answer is both vertical and horizontal. He says, vertically, I got to love God with everything I got. And then my job horizontally here is to love the people that are around me. It's a brilliant answer. Here's the tension. He's got to be able to do that perfectly in order to follow completely the law. And how do you love God with all your heart? Perfectly. How do you love him with all your mind? Perfectly. How do you love him with all your strength? Perfectly. I don't know. But I'm telling you, that's harder to judge than how do you know if I'm loving my neighbor perfectly? I can see that on the externals pretty easy. The visual of that is something I can pick up. So he lawyers this together. And Jesus' reply, verse 28, is great. He goes, hey, good job. You've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Now he's back in his language, right? Back in his Old Testament life. He's not talking about uh, 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 eternal uh, destination stuff. He's, he's back to the Old Testament. Do this and you'll live. Do this and you'll live. And so Jesus is speaking his language now. He's like, I speak your language. I know where you pulled that from. You're not fooling me. He goes, hey, you nailed it. That's absolutely the right answer. Bravo, good lawyering. Good job. Now the guy's chagrined at this answer because he knows that he has just given an answer that's so huge and epic that if he were to actually be expected to do that, it would be very, very difficult in life to pull off. And so now his inner lawyer comes out a little bit and he's dealing with the tension because here's the real tension. Um, Paul says it in Galatians this way. It's actually a quote from Deuteronomy, but Galatians chapter three, uh, Paul says, for everyone who relies on the works of the law are under a curse. Because it's written, curses everyone who doesn't continue to do everything written in the book of the law. And that's actually a quote from Deuteronomy 27. And what does that mean? It means if you say that this is the rule book and you say the answer is I have to do this, then you better be doing that all the time perfectly. If that's your whole answer is to follow the rules. And now he's feeling the tension. Are you with me on the tension? Because he has just nailed it. He's like, yes. And Jesus is like, okay, go do it. Show me you can do it. He's like, wait a second, wait a second, time out, time out. Just because that's the answer doesn't mean I can actually do the answer. Just because that's what's expected doesn't mean I can actually do that. So verse 29, it comes together and he goes, hey, 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 hey. 
He wants to justify himself. That's what lawyers want to do, right? So he says, Jesus, um, I'm not going to touch the how do I love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength because, you know, you can't judge that on me. But let me just double check. Who exactly is my neighbor? And this is where this is going to break open for us. Who exactly is the person that from Deuteronomy to today, God's been saying, love this person the way that you love yourself? Who is that individual? Now, when I think of neighbor, my first instinct is proximity. When I think of neighbor, I think of proximity. Who is around me all the time? Who's the person that, you know, didn't cut their grass or dandelions are blowing into my field? Or, you know, who's that person who's the fence is falling down? They don't want to share the responsibility. Like, that's the neighbor, right? The person that I'm doing, dogs barking, whatever it is. I'm the only one that's experienced that, huh? <laughs> but here's his problem. He's trying to identify that. Also, he is now stuck in a pattern of lawyering Jesus. And lawyering Jesus becomes a pattern. That's why it's a dangerous process to get into. It's dangerous to look at the scriptures and go, yeah, but what's the minimum requirement for this? Okay, I got you that that's expected. What's the minimum requirement for this? And here's the thing that we do. This might be the only thing you need to hear. We got to stop approaching Jesus looking for the minimum requirements, right? Remember when we were all first getting our first computers and we, were, we didn't know anything about minimum requirements, and we get excited because we find a good deal and we get it. And then we try to put our floppy disks in there and then they wouldn't load right because we didn't meet the minimum requirements for the new program that came out. And you got too good of a deal and you had to go back and reload. And then you got the new minimum requirements and like a month later, a new thing would come out and you couldn't do it. So then you get the new minimum requirements. Eventually, you had to stop looking at the minimum requirements as the first thing for all of your decisions. You had to go a little bit over the minimum requirements. The minimum requirements weren't gonna last long enough because the world was changing too fast. And that's the thing. We get stuck in patterns of looking for minimum recs, minimum requirements. We do that in our faith all the time. How much should I give? I don't know, what's the minimum requirement? All right? How should I serve? I don't know, what's the minimum requirement? We do that not just in our faith, we do that in relationships. It's Mother's Day, what's the minimum requirement? We do that all the time. What's the minimum requirement? What's the minimum requirement? What's the minimum requirement? And then we measure, is it worth it to climb up to that minimum requirement? And we train ourselves to live minimum requirement lives. And when we point that at Jesus, we train ourselves to have a minimum requirement faith. And this guy's lawyering Jesus. He's looking through the law. He's understanding it. I'll be honest with you. There's been times where I've looked through the scriptures with kind of a, an approach. Okay, what's, what's, the, what's the minimum? I'm in tension with someone. What's the minimum requirement? Take me to Matthew 18. What's the minimum requirement I have to do to be okay with God before I can write this person off? That's a great approach to dealing with tension. That's a great heart condition to start with when I'm in conflict. Well, I gotta make sure I talk to you. And then when you're a knucklehead, because I know you're gonna be a knucklehead, I gotta bring one more person. We gotta talk to you one more time. And then I can be done with you right? Someone's divisive. I'm looking through Titus. Warn a divisive person once. Warn them a second time. After that, I have nothing to do with them. Yes, minimum requirement, right? We're looking for minimum requirements all the time. And when we start taking that to our faith, we forget Jesus. He never started with minimum requirements. We told story after story in this series of people Jesus interacted with, and he never started with, okay, minimum requirements. Stop doing this. 
get this together, make this right, do this, minimum requirements. He always valued the human and started with caring for them right where they're at. When you start getting Jesus's heart towards things, minimum requirements don't become the thing anymore. They're just helpful tent posts as we're on the run. How many, how many things do I do the same way my whole life from when I was a kid till today? Yet my faith, I do the same way my whole life because I know what the minimum requirements are, right? I, I, how many things, let's talk about giving for a second. We'll make everybody uncomfortable. It's Mother's Day, why not, right? I go, okay, so here's the minimum requirement in the scripture. I learn it when I'm eight, nine, 10, 11, 12 years old. And then I just do the minimum requirement my whole life and I feel really good about myself. Yet I never have an opportunity to be generous or do some of the other things that maybe God put something on my heart, but I'm like, I already met the minimum requirement. I don't even have to think about it. And I turn off this other thing that God might put alive in my heart. Why? Because I'm like, oh, I met my minimum requirement. Apply it where you need to apply it. So he says, Jesus, what's the minimum requirement? Who's my neighbor? Who's my neighbor? Basically, he says, how messy do you expect me to get? How much is this going to cost me to do this? Let me start budgeting accordingly. Verse 30, Jesus tells a story we've heard a lot, an incredible story. What's funny is we, we talk about this as a parable because Jesus told a lot of parables. He doesn't specifically say that this is a parable. Most believe that it is, but it's a believable enough story that it could just be an example of a story that he knew. It could be something that did actually happen. I'm not sure. But Jesus replies, he goes, okay, so a man was going down, down's important there, from Jerusalem to Jericho. Why is that important? Because the road from Jerusalem to Jericho is about 17 miles long, and over that 17 miles, it drops about 3,000 feet. So it is a downhill road. It's funny, I was, uh, the first time I drove a, a scary drive that I remember, I think I was 17 years old, and I was driving a, a pickup truck up to Yosemite. And if you've never done the drive to Yosemite, you got to wrap around all these mountain passes and stuff. And I had never really driven in an environment like that. And I'm driving, and I'm like, man, I look over the side. It's a long ways down on the side. And I'm driving, and, you know, you're on the right-hand side of the road, which means you're on the edge. I'm headed that way. And then coming around these bends are these campers of people who have been hanging out at Yosemite. And I start, for the first time, my brain goes, do you need a special license to drive one of those? right? I'm starting to evaluate. I'm thinking, man, this isn't the safest thing. Why? Because I recognize the danger of this particular road. And this culture, this time, these people would certainly recognize that Jesus has just pointed to a very dangerous road, both physically dangerous because of the nature of this drop-off and because of the nature of the windiness of this road. It was commonly known that there are good places to get ambushed on this road. So thieves would hang out on this road, and it was a common thing. People would know people who had been ambushed on this road much further on past Jesus's time through, uh, through the next century. It was just common. You can historically read. This is, it was called the Thieves Road at one point. It just was a place, a good place for an ambush. You can't see very far. It's dangerous. You can't escape. You got to run either really uphill to get away or a cliff. Where are you going to go? So you wouldn't go this road alone if you could avoid it. So Jesus is saying a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half 
dead. What's interesting is stripping someone of his clothes, I always wondered about that. I'm like, that's just gross and mean. But in that culture, clothes were valuable. They were currency. There's a reason they cast lots for Jesus's tattered clothes. Clothes were currency. They were valuable. They've essentially said, Jesus is essentially saying, this man has been stripped of everything of value he has. Everything that he could possibly possess. Also, anything that would identify him. Whose team is he on? What culture is he? What, what ethnic background does he have? What associations is he? What positional authority is he? Is he a slave? Is he wealthy? Is he a merchant? We don't know. He's an absolute mystery. He's a blob of flesh on the side of the road. Right? So Jesus is saying, without any preconceived notions of the value of this person, it's just a human and has only the value that every human has. You don't get to put any other extra stigmas into him. Then he says, a parade of people come by. The first is a priest. So the priest happened to be going down the same road. And when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. Now, remember he's talking to a lawyer, but not a lawyer, an expert in the law. And he would know in this biblical law that there would have been a mandate for this priest to help someone in distress. I mean, if it was an animal in distress, it would be this priest would have a mandate. If the animal fell into a hole to help the animal, let, let that even, you know, that with, with just that, he'd have been in, obligated to do something to help, but he doesn't. He passes by on the other side. So what do we learn from this? Number one, there would be some shock value in the crowd. A priest walked by, didn't, didn't do anything to help a guy that was just like that. Now you could try to justify it. I sat here and tried to justify it. I mean, he could have been on his way somewhere important. I read some, uh, some background that say, well, you know, one of the things that was important in priestly duties was to be ceremonially clean. And if you touched what looked like a dead body, he might become unclean and unable to do some duty or responsibility he might have. So I'm trying hard to justify, right? But it's clear Jesus is pointing at painting a picture here. This guy has obligation, regardless of what his other situation is, to engage. And what does he do? He sees the mess and goes, oh, it's messy. He goes by on the other side. This guy represents religion. Represents knowing the law. I was thinking about this just harsh reality. Knowing the right things to do isn't gonna save anybody. Just knowing the right things to do isn't gonna help anybody, isn't gonna save anybody. This is the fact that you know the right things to do doesn't help anybody. It's harsh, it hurts, but it's true. You think religion and religious systems will help and save people? No. Just the system by itself, just knowing it. If you're unable to apply and to engage, if you're unable and unwilling, if you don't have the margins to engage, all of those things, not particularly helpful, Jesus says. The priest walks by on the other side. So to a Levite, verse 32, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. Now, the difference between a Levite and a priest would have been positional authority. The priest had higher positional authority. The Levite would have had an ethnic, uh, because he would have been of the tribe of Levite, his whole entire culturally would be part of uh, participating in the sacraments, not the sacraments at that time, but in the elements of the church and worship. Basically, this guy's job is to be a servant of the church, of the kingdom. He's a server. He has a moral obligation, you would think, to serve and help somebody when you're there. Here's the thing. Just because you feel obligation, obligation doesn't save anybody. A sense of obligation doesn't help anybody. 
But this guy has an obligation. And he sees this person who's been victimized, who has no identifying markers of value other than he's human and he's alive. Barely, but alive. He goes, whew, not dealing with that mess. Now, this is interesting. There's a, uh, a story floating around there. And because of the way it floats around, I believe it's more of a fable than a true story, but it's believable. About a seminary class, which is a Bible class teaching future pastors, where the entire class was tasked with a specific assignment. And the assignment is this. You're going to go onto the school radio and preach a short message about the Good Samaritan. And we're going to grade your discussion on that. But the teacher actually did a social experiment and entering the classroom at the, at the space where you would have to walk through the hallway to get to the classroom, to get to the place where you would record your sermon, he had one of his friends out there pretending to be in distress, pretending at some points to have a heart attack or to need help or whatever, to be in distress. And an entire parade of future priests and Levites walked past an individual in distress in order to get into the room to teach what they had learned about being a good Samaritan. Now, I don't know if the story's true or not. It ends with they all failed, but, but I don't know if it's true, but it's believable, isn't it? It's certainly believable. We could all put ourselves into that shoes and go, yeah, I could foresee a point where I had learned what to do where I knew and understood the obligation of what to do, but where I was too busy, didn't have the margin, and walked past the actual need. We can all put ourselves into that shoes, into those shoes. And Jesus is pointing a picture. He's answering the lawyer. He's saying, okay, you want to know your bare minimum obligation? Verse 33, but a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. Now, for a Samaritan to do this is certainly a blow to the crowd. Because this is a crowd that has deep-rooted racial prejudice towards the Samaritans, has ethnic and historically their cultural prejudice towards them, assumes that Samaritans are essentially beneath them. They're a half-breed. Their entire existence is an abomination to them because they violated God's will and intermarried when they weren't supposed to intermarry in their mind. And so in their minds, this group of people are just not even deserving of the same respect and rights and values as God's people. And not only that, they're just ethnically beneath them. Ever hear that narrative come out on the news? Ever hear that story? So for Jesus to say, someone like that walks by. And when they walk by, they see, everybody saw, but they're moved to compassion. One version says, moved to compassion. And he took pity on him. And then look at what he does. Verse 34, it says, he went to him, he bandaged his wounds. He poured oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn to take care of him. It's easy to read through this and not realize just how much investment this is right here. I was beginning to think, I'm like, did people just travel with bandages? Enough bandages to put together someone who's naked and bleeding? Like, I don't travel with that much bandages. I'm getting ready to go on a trip, and I was like, I should probably bring, you know, a little thing, a little, like a little travel-sized thing of bandages, right? 
but I don't have that kind of bandages. So I was studying, I was trying to figure out, and the best I could figure is the implication is he probably had to strip pieces of his own garment apart in order to tie them to this person's body to staunch and stop the bleeding that was happening on the side of the road. Remember, we talked about how valuable clothes were, how they were identifying and important, a piece of your stature and who you were. To bandage somebody up was a big deal at this level, a stranger. To pour oil and wine on him. I mean, how much oil and wine can this guy be traveling with? What's the benefit of oil and wine? The picture is the, the oil is like a soothing balm and, and would soften the skin and prepare it for the bandaging and the wine is like a disinfectant. To say, here's my resources. Here's what I have. This guy's on a 17-mile road going downhill through robbers and he's saying, I'm gonna strip my own authority away and take all of the resources I have available to me and pour them out on you. I don't even know if you're gonna live yet. I don't know what culture you are. I don't know if you ethnically hate me because I'm beneath you. I don't know if you're a peer. I don't know what social station you're at. I don't know if you're rich and wealthy, if you're a servant or a slave. All I know is you're in need. You're a mess. And here's what I have. And he walks into this man's mess. And then he says, he put him on his own donkey. I was trying to figure out, I'm like, is he going uphill or downhill here? Because am I hiking uphill and no clothes and you're on my donkey? Man, what an amazing gift he gives to this person. This person can't move. They're not gonna be able to make the walk the rest of the way, up or downhill. It's a pretty lavish love. It's pretty extravagant. It's a pretty good picture of what loving someone at the same level that you love yourself looks like. Verse 35, they get to an end. It says, the next day he took out two silver coins and he gave them to the innkeeper. And he said, look after him. And when I return, I'll reimburse you for any extra expenses you may have. Now, denarii is the phrase the type of cash there. And I started trying to figure out how much is a denarii today? What is the equivalent? You know, some points in scripture, it kind of moves around. Is it a day's wage? How, you know, how much is that? So I, I, I was looking and here's what I could find. In, uh, in the Roman times, there was, uh, there, there's like receipts from going to inns. Like they can see how much they charged historically. And essentially a day at an inn was about a 32nd of a denarii. Right? So a denarii would get you 30 days basically in an inn. And so the best I can find is he said, I'm putting this guy up for two months. Think about that equivalent. I'm putting you up in a hotel for two months so you can recover. You can regain your stature. You have shelter. You have a place to gather yourselves and put yourself together. And not only that, I told the innkeeper, if you incur any expenses, because I know you're going to need some things, like, I don't know, clothes, food, put that on me, and I'll come back through and settle the bill. I don't know if you've ever had a picture of just how generous this was, just how caring and loving this was. I don't know if I fully had a picture of just how caring this was and how generous this was. The more time I spent with it, the more I was like, ah, God, this hurts. That's not a good minimum requirement. 
Wouldn't the minimum requirement be like, I called somebody, ambulance. I stayed with you even until they showed up. I've been there before, right? Saw someone on the side of the road. We were on our way to dinner. They were passed out, and I wasn't sure what was going on. I called. Actually, I called the police officer whose number I had directly. I said, what do I do? He's like, it could be. He could have been assaulted. You don't know what's going on, so stay there. You have to call 911. And I did. He was just drunk and passed out and popped up as soon as the uh, paramedics got there. But, but I remember thinking, man, I was late to dinner for this. I stopped when other people didn't stop. Minimum wrecks met. Right? I'm not saying that was a bad thing. I'm just saying this is a lot. I lost like 20 minutes. You know how many people got in front of me in line at Outback? 20 minutes? I don't know. <laughs> this guy said, I'll pay for two months hotel, and if you rack up any charges, I'll come and cover all the pay-per-view. <laughs> right? Whatever it is. Whatever it is, I got you. Lavish love. Verse 36, Jesus finishes the story and readdresses the lawyer. Who you can imagine, his heart is just sinking into his stomach. Remember, he set the stage. Jesus didn't say, okay, here's, here's how you sum all this up. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. He said that. He's trying to lawyer Jesus. He's like, here's all you got to do. Love God perfectly, vertical. Love everyone else perfectly, horizontal. Got it. And Jesus is like, cool, go do that. And he's like, whoa, time out, time out. That's hard. What does that mean? And then Jesus paints a picture that is so generous and so lavish and so loving. Verse 36, he answers him. He says, so, so uh, lawyer, which of these three guys? Can you imagine the, the, just, the, just, the, just the posturing of this? Three dudes, which one do you think was the neighbor to the man who fell among the hands of the robbers? Okay, Jesus, I get it. <laughs> I get it. <laughs> so the expert of the law replies, uh, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus said, okay, go and do likewise. What an incredible picture of a lavish love. Forces us to ask some questions. Forces us to ask some questions like, who qualifies for my love? Force us to wonder about who qualifies. What does someone have to have before they qualify for me to demonstrate love to them? Apparently, it's not clothing or positional stature or health or well-being. Maybe the right question is, what is the quality of my love when I interact with people? Am I a bare minimum? Am I a minimum Rex kind of a person? I was trying to think if I've ever loved a stranger that deeply. That sacrificially, that investment. And I was thinking, why would I not do it? And it was easy to come up with that list. <laughs> There's lots of reasons to not do it. Sometimes it's just the interruption and just the raw dynamics of time. I don't have the time to do it. I see the mess, I get it. But I'm in 11 other messes, all of which I made. I don't have time to pick up your mess. This guy didn't intentionally end up in this mess. Sometimes I think he must have done something to be in this situation. 
right? This mess is probably something you deserve. So Jesus takes that off the plate. He says, you don't get to assume this is something he deserved. He fell among robbers. He was doing the same thing you're doing. He's just walking down the road. He's just cruising through life. But my gut instinct is, well, you wouldn't be in this situation. Really? He was just doing the same thing. He was just living. Some of life's greatest invitations, they come packaged as interruptions. Some of life's greatest opportunities, they come packaged as inconveniences. They show up as, are you serious? But they have the potential to break open life into some of the greatest opportunities that we could ever see. Here's the problem. Most of the people I know who say they're a follower of Jesus are good people. They're just too busy. They're great people. They're just too busy. They just don't have the margin to be interrupted or inconvenienced like this level. Now, we could talk about the financial margin. And that's a whole other conversation. Most of the people I know who love Jesus are too overcommitted in their time and in their resources. Where even if they felt in their heart that God had given them an opportunity to give to help somebody, they don't have the resource to actually do it. They haven't created the space or the margin to do it. Good people, just too busy. Author John Hambrick wrote a book called Move Towards the Mess. And it is connected to this whole series, and I love it. And he talks about three reasons why we don't move towards the mess. Three reasons why we don't do it. So here's three reasons why we don't, why we don't do what Jesus invited us to do. He says, go and do likewise. And the first one is convenience. If you're too busy, when you see messy people, you'll see them as inconveniences and not opportunities. You're too busy when messy people are inconveniences and not opportunities. Do you wondering if you're too busy? This is how you can stick a thermometer in there. If you see a mess and you go, man, I'd love to help, but not today. If you're still on the side of the road on Tuesday at three when I drive by here again, I'm diving in. It's Thursday. <laughs> I know, but you don't understand. My Friday, my Saturday, my Sunday, it's packed. So you go on to the other side of the road. Convenience. The second reason he says is comfort. Comfort. Here's the problem. We get comfortable and comfort leads to boredom. But if we're following Jesus, our lives should never be boring. But we get comfortable. Ah, I just try to make, you know, I got my margins. I got my stuff. I got, I got everything I need. And we get stuck being comfortable. And then we got to be careful because comfort leads to boredom. And we go, man, our whole Christian faith, I don't feel compelled to do anything. I'm just bored. I don't feel the pressure or the expectation. I don't feel any of the stuff. I'm just going. I'm just cruising through. I'm just bored. I'm comfortable. He says we don't move towards the mess because we're comfortable. The third reason he says we don't move towards the mess, control. We like things to be controlled. Who wants to move towards a mess? That's not controlled. That's not controllable. Here's the thing about that, though. We have to stop trying to fix people and just love them. You're like, I'd move towards that mess if I thought I could fix you, right? If there was like three steps that are clear, then I'd, then I'd engage. If you'd hop through these hoops, if you do this process that I need you to do, then I'll engage. And he says, we don't move towards the mess because we want only to deal 
with things we control. And here's the thing we have to remember, even when we're not in control, God still is. Even when we're not in control, God still is. Here's the problem with messy people. They're frustrating and they're uncontrollable. So how does this work for us? How do we move towards the mess? What can I actually do today? Pastor Mike, that was a lot of pressure you just threw out there. <laughs> I'm like, I just quoted Jesus, and Jesus is just talking to the guy that's trying to do the bare minimum. Don't put that on me. And you say, hey, listen, let's be real for a second, Pastor Mike. I can't pay for myself to go two months to a hotel room where I'd be gone right now. <laughs> right? <laughs> I don't have the margins <laughs> to just do that. I wouldn't be in this place today. I'd be gone hanging out. Someone else would be bringing me room service if I could do that, right? I just can't. I can't afford to do that. And I certainly can't afford to do that for every single person that needs some help. I certainly can't afford to do it for every single person that needs some help. I don't have the insert thing here, time, resources, skill, whatever it is, right, et cetera. I don't have the thing to give it away. But let me just start with a very basic question. Do you have the margin to be interrupted if you did? Do you have the margin in your life to be interrupted even if you did have that? Do you have any margin for that? Because if you're too busy to be interrupted by anybody else's mess, then let me just be clear, you're too busy. As I tried to justify the priest and the Levite, I started thinking, what, man, I, mean, I can't get ceremonial and clean. Maybe there was a wedding, a baby, I don't know what he had to do. He had to be somewhere. Come on. Can't stop every time someone's in trouble. If you're too busy to be interrupted, you're probably too busy. So what's the next problem? Well, that's overwhelming. There's so many messes. Let me give you some tools, some practical tools. This is a quote from Andy Stanley. He's a pastor out in uh, Georgia, in Atlanta. And he says something I think is brilliant. It's a brilliant principle to apply here. He says, do for one what you wish you could do for everyone. Pastor Mike, I can't help everybody. But you can help somebody. You can help somebody. You can have enough margin to help somebody. I love this picture in John chapter 5. Jesus shows up at a place called Bethesda, Pool of Bethesda. And this is a place where people who are sick and ill and have issues gather. And there was a superstition that they had. And they believed that whenever the pool of water that they were gathered around would ripple, that that meant an angel was touching the pool. And the first person to get in the water after the angel touched the pool had a chance to be healed by that angel. That was the superstition, right? So sick people would gather here. And if you had a, a crippled person in your family or someone who was ill or whatever, you would drop them off here. And they would just wait and wait and wait and wait for the superstition to hit. And then they, would, then they would jump in. They would try to be the person, right? And so Jesus shows up in this environment. And he's in a room, an area, not a room. He's in an area that's filled with people who have tremendous needs. And John chapter 5 tells this incredible story. Jesus walks through this group of people who all have need. And he stops at one guy. And he says, what's your deal? And the guy says, I've been here for 38 years. Every day coming down here but I'm crippled. And so I don't have the resource when the water's moved to be the first one in. Can you imagine 38 years of coming to a place just hoping beyond hope that everyone else will be cool and let you get in first, but everybody else has their own need and so they just keep jumping you in line, right? And here's Jesus and he walks right up. He walks past, who knows how many people all gathered with some specific need. And he walks to one guy and he says, oh, I got you. Why don't you rise up and walk? And the guy gets up 
and he heals him. And then I just want you to have this picture. Jesus pulls up his robes. He starts stepping over this guy and steps through this guy and he pushes kind of through the crowds and they walk and he walks past all of these other people and their needs. And he walks out with this guy. I don't know how to reconcile the story because if I got Jesus's healing hands, come on now, he could have had a revival service right there. Just start healing. You're healed. You're healed. You get a car. You get a car. You get a car, right? I mean, that's what's like, that's how you just, you know, gain fame and, and influence or whatever. And Jesus was just never interested with any of that. He just knew there was a specific need. And for whatever reason, the Holy Spirit, the Father himself was prompted to that need. And he interacted with that person. And he helped that person all the way to the end. He didn't just help him a little bit. He helped him all the way through. Maybe the answer to the Good Samaritan isn't every person on the side of the road, every opportunity. Maybe the, person, the answer is I have enough more margin to help somebody. Somebody. Because can you imagine if everybody who, who called Jesus Lord would take enough margin to help somebody? The impact, the kingdom impact we would have. Listen, I get it. You can't help everybody. I can't help everybody. I can't help everybody that just call. Like, I don't even have to go looking, right? I get people will just come to me looking for help. <laughs> I want to say something, but you're going to disrespect me, but I'll just say it. I won't touch the hard line because that's the end of my day. If I start answering the hard line, right? We have to have someone else answer the hard line and, and just do I can't, like, you should call me on myself. Everyone can call me on myself. I'm just telling you, I can't answer the hard line. That's the end of my day every time I answer the hard line because it's just, a, it goes for wherever it goes. I don't even know if the church has a working hard line anymore because you can't, yeah, it does. Thank you. Where's Allie? She just had a baby. Congratulations, Allie. <laughs> Happy Mother's Day if you're listening to this, right? Someone else has to manage the hard line. I can't do it. I just get so tied up in things. I can't help everybody. I can't. You can't. I don't have any expectation. Jesus didn't help every single need that was in front of him. He walked through crowds and picked one person. Why did he pick that person? I don't know. The Lord put him on his heart. So that's the one. You're the one. Today is your day. You're the one. You're the one. So you're driving around in your car and you see a need and you go, hey, that's the one. Okay. Do that one. Do that one for that one. Would you stand for me? We're going to close. I just want to give you that team, that tool, and I'm going to just tell you some, some basic truths. <laughs> John Maxwell, let me give you one more quote. He just says this, it's a leadership principle, but it says, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. If we are going to be people who demonstrate the love of Jesus and move through the mess, then we got to demonstrate that we care. And you're not going to have the ability to solve every single person's need, but you could do that for somebody. You can do it for somebody. And can you imagine if you did? Can you imagine the difference that would make in just this, just in this neighborhood, if we had that look? If we had our eyes open looking for opportunities, just in this community, can you imagine the buzz it would make in this community if people were like, man, did you hear that, that couple from Celebration Center? They helped that one, yeah, I heard it, but that's not the story I heard. I heard another family from, I heard it, that, and all this, can you imagine how the, the, the name of the Lord would just roar out? People, man, those Jesus people, I don't know if I agree with everything they believe, but they sure care. They sure engage. They sure demonstrate. And someone said, well, they didn't do it for me. It's okay. God's got someone assigned to you. Just chill out. That's what we can do. I love that on Mother's Day, we're talking about this because I think mothers demonstrate this, that heart of the Good Samaritan so well. 
They demonstrate seeing beyond all the other stuff and just say, man, can I just love that, love that person? I learned compassion from my mom. I did. I didn't get it anywhere else. It's just kindness, caring for people, treating them like they're valuable. Thanks for doing that, mom. Thanks for painting that picture. Dad's figured out. <laughs> Teasing. That's me, so I could say it. I'm gonna pray, and we're gonna close, and and then we have a gift uh, at the, that'll be at the doors, just just for all the ladies. Because listen, it's Mother's Day. That doesn't mean that we, mothers are the only thing special. They are special, but we want to just give to all the ladies. So it's just a little gift from you just to say we love you and thanks and all that stuff. And so that'll be at the doors for you to go. But I want to pray. And, and here's just my invitation challenge to you. Would you just, maybe you're at a spot where it's just about figuring out your margins so that you can do this. Would that just drive you today? This week, I pray that would just get into you. And I pray that you would start having the eyes to just see who's the one. What's the opportunity? It doesn't have to be every opportunity, but God, I just want to be positioned so that if there is an opportunity, come on now, I can engage. I'll be willing. And then when you see the mess, just move towards the mess. Just move towards the mess. So Father, thanks. Thanks for painting us a picture of what this looks like. Thanks for, thanks for not letting us lawyer our faith into minimum requirements. Not for... I don't, want, I don't want to experience this bare minimum of what you have for us in the kingdom. And I don't want others to think that that's how we get by until the, you know, till the end. It's, we're not scraping by. We're moving lavishly and abundantly from opportunity to opportunity as you lay it out. I pray you'd give us your eyes to see needs that you've laid out for us. God, I don't, we don't have to manipulate it. You'll just give it to us. I pray that when our heart leaps and the Holy Spirit, God, speaks to us, and says, ooh, that's the one, that we'd respond and have margins and be able and willing to do it because that's what you called us to do. I pray that we'd see people who weren't like us as our neighbors. We'd see people who didn't have positional authority or didn't have maybe the right ethnic background or whatever it is, and we just see them as our neighbors, and we'd have compassion, and we'd really see them. I pray that it would challenge and change us. Thanks for moms. Thanks for Mother's Day and just getting to come to a, a place like this in a moment like this and celebrate the work you do through them. God, to teach us to have these kind of eyes. We just love you and thank you. In Jesus' name, amen and amen.